Today on episode number 465 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Mind Over Monsters, Supporting Youth Mental Health with Compassionate Challenge, with Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. It is such a joy today to be inviting back to the show Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. She's a psychologist, professor, and senior associate director for teaching and learning at Simmons University, where she teaches classes on affective science and mental health, researches the intersections of emotion, motivation, and learning, and provides educational development for faculty. Sarah gives keynote addresses and workshops at a variety of colleges and national and international conferences, blogs for Psychology Today, and writes essays for venues like LitHub and the Chronicle of Higher Education. In her free time, she enjoys devouring fiction, spending time by the sea with her canine and human daughters, and cooking up pescatarian meals for good friends. Sarah Rose Kavanaugh, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It always feels like when we don't talk for a little bit, so much has happened, and certainly that is the case these days. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Yes. I want to first begin talking about monsters, and this is not the first time that that analogy has been made in these conversations and in people's books and work. And I, I want to speak specifically about why this analogy resonates so much with you in your work as well. Tell us about these monsters. Sure. Well, I think when I think about monsters and when I think about mental health, I really mean two sort of types of monsters, right? Uh, I think that we have internal monsters and we have to face that our bodies are pretty messy and unpredictable. They betray us at times. We also have sort of these monsters in our mind, these ways that we talk to ourselves that are discouraging, that set us up for failure or that impact our emotions in really negative ways. And so we have these internal monsters that we're grappling with. And some of us more than others. I think about my own struggles with panic disorder my whole life as a sort of monster that afflicts me sometimes. And But then, of course, we're walking through this world that has some real external monsters. And there are so many monsters we could list here, right? There's racism, poverty, climate change, a global pandemic. And even when we don't think about recent challenges, there are all the monsters, you know, we walk through life and we lose people, terrible things happen, no matter what time period we're living through. And it's a real difficult challenge, the human condition, right? Walking through this world full of monsters when our own bodies (laughs) and minds can be monstrous. And I, in the book, dive into monster theory which I didn't even realize was a thing. I love to do this. As you know, in my books, I kind of jump into other disciplines that are not my own and probably wreak havoc (laughs) 
but through humanities and literature, a lot of people have examined the, the, the idea of monsters and how that relates to, again, the human condition and our psychology. Whenever I talk about that, I'm going to have the honor of interviewing you again. My husband will always ask, is, you know, is she going to talk about bees again? <laughs> and that's funny. <laughs> I, I really do appreciate how you incorporate such fascinating looks in your work at these topics oh, that thanks. most of us wouldn't have done any reading or study on <laughs> and, and that you can make it so engaging for us. So I definitely appreciate that about the way that you can do it. One of the things that you stress in your work is a, a vital combination of two things, and that is compassion and challenge. Why is that combination of those two things so important to us? Right. Well, when we go back to the what we were saying earlier about the challenges of being a human being, uh, another challenge is how do we go out? How do we get up every day and go out into this world that is so challenging with these bodies that are so challenging? And how do we thrive within that world, right? And it can be terrifying. And I look at a whole body of work on recreational fear and people's love of horror movies as one way that people may train themselves in safe settings, right, to deal with the heightened arousal, the beating heart, the sweaty palms, and the idea that we can be threatened by violence, that we can be threatened by loss of our loved ones in a safe setting that kind of prepares us. And for people who like that sort of thing, lots of people don't, <laughs> I think that it can be like a little training ground. And I think that a lot of life ideally is like that. We have a safe setting, right? Where we are technically safe. We have people who love us. We have sandboxes to play in, in which we can experiment. And yet we have to take on challenges. And when we think about the classroom or when I think about the classroom and in particular for those students who are traditionally aged undergraduates, you know, college is usually that sandbox time. They're coming uh, into adulthood and that in itself is terrifying. And I read a lot of the literature on transition to college and emerging adulthood and how difficult that is on a biological, psychological and social level. And we need to develop these safe settings where they can develop skills. And so there is both the compassion and the challenge. And I think that we need to bring that into our classrooms. And would you talk about the elements of empathy in that compassion? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I think compassion comes first, <laughs> not just in the, in the term, but that is the grounding that we need to develop first, right? And I think... I have such empathy for, for developing human beings. And of course, I'm a mother of an adolescent and I have a lot of adolescents in my life. And then I teach college students, some of whom are not traditionally aged, but many of whom are. And, and so they're in this period of life where all of their routines, all of their coping strategies are undergoing massive disruption, right? Whether they're living on physical campuses or they're transitioning to independence and learning online, this is a time of life when their coping strategies are kind of blown out of the water. And I think having empathy for that and how difficult that is, is the responsibility of anyone working in higher education. And so I absolutely agree that empathy is a huge part of the compassion piece. 
I'm fortunate to have good friends who are in the discipline of psychology. And I I mean, Sarah, my undergrad was in psychology. It has been a minute since I (laughs) would have read these things. I was surprised recently to learn about the efficacy of exposure theory. I -hmm. I would have thought that that we would have long ago decided that that didn't didn't actually work, but you just alluded to it earlier, in fact, that it is one of those things that shows to work. So now I want to expose maybe a little bit else of my misunderstanding. I'm curious about behaviorism, and specifically what I mean by that is can we behave our way into having greater empathy for other people? And I I think about it as it's harder for us to have empathy if it's something we have no concept for Mm -hmm. what what that's like. And I I talk about sometimes, not proudly, of course, but not just not having enough empathy early in my teaching for what it is like when people pass away in other people's families versus how Mm -hmm. my family might have navigated that culturally speaking. And so I needed to behave my way. I did not verbalize how I felt (laughs) when someone was going to be gone for two weeks to another state to to commemorate this grandparent's death. I just didn't Mm -hmm. have capacity for the empathy, but thank goodness I don't verbalize every thought that I have to (laughs) students. So I'm curious in terms of of that, and maybe I'm misusing behaviorism there, but in terms of that idea, can we behave our way? Can we act our way into having greater empathy for students? Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I'd like to pull apart two threads there, if that's okay, and answer one and yeah. then answer the other. I think the exposure therapy, I just wanted to address a little bit. We have, there are those forms of exposure therapy that you're thinking of, I think, in intro psych textbook where things like flooding and someone's scared of snakes and you dump a, a bucket yes. of snakes over their head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that is that is not what a lot of people think about you or what is being practiced in contemporary psychotherapy offices. And in the book, I interview a couple of clinical counseling psychologists because I am an academic psychologist and I wanted to be sure to get the clinical perspective. And one of them works primarily with adolescents with a range of anxiety disorders, but particularly obsessive compulsive disorder. And he does primarily exposure therapy. And the stories he tells me are so beautiful of, of, and there are such examples of compassionate challenge. And so he has these students who have a fear of school, of school refusal, and he sits with them. He drives to their house. He sits with them outside while they watch the bus go by and don't get on it while they're doing deep breathing techniques, while they're discussing, while they're rating where they are, reflecting on their experience. And then finally, one day they get on the bus step by step by step until they're sitting outside the classroom, until the student is in the classroom. And when we talk about empathy, the empathy of that sort of individualized, care-focused, relationship-focused treatment and, and, and therapy and relational I think is so beautiful and so empathetic. And he has some criticisms. Uh, his name's Ryan Glode. He practices in Rhode Island. He has some criticisms of the kind of counseling that's done in a lot of college campuses as kind of band-aid venting sorts of therapy, that they're not individualized, that they're not, because they don't have the time, right? And they're so overtasked and they don't have the resources. But he's a huge advocate for exposure therapy to treat especially anxiety. And I have a couple other clinical psychologist friends uh, who do a lot of similar therapy uh, with people exposing them to germ fears, things like that. And so 
So we've come a long way from the bucket of snakes. <laughs> and as Ryan says quite beautifully in, in my interview of him in the book, he says, living is exposure therapy. You know, we talk about the, those monsters just going through life and and facing these things that we're a little bit afraid of. Again, ideally with friends and safety and belongingness is, is, is the practice of living. What are some of the practical ways that we can then show compassion for students? Mm-hmm. I love the idea. Um, I've been quoting everywhere. <laughs> Robert Talbot has a blog post about taking the semester that if you're on a 15 week term, which not everyone is, and dedicating the 12 weeks to content, but then spending the first week kind of building community, doing onboarding, showing students examples of any assignments that you're going to have them do so that they have transparency, what things look like, answering questions, getting people excited for the topic, and really digging in that first week or two at the beginning, and then saving the end for students catching up on missed assignments, if you're doing some ungrading or another type of alternative assessment, having students revise work, doing kind of high level, what did we do this semester? And as a way to be compassionate, both to the students and also the faculty member or the instructor. And I think also prioritizes that first step. So I think it's really critical in every course to first have that grounding of safety, of belongingness, of relationships, of inclusion, and and developing that first before you have, do any of the S students to step outside their comfort zone. And I think that those are some practical ways that we can do that in the classroom. And yeah. I know we're going to be talking about this later in the conversation, but something that I took away from that blog post for myself was looking at it mm-hmm. from the, and you, you just said this, but <laughs> from the professor's standpoint, I just wouldn't in the past, and I, I still struggle with it now, thinking about, yeah, think about the flow of your course from a student's perspective. I have done halfway decent at that, but I forget about that when you do assignments where people do get to iterate on their work and have opportunities to fail, and we know mm-hmm. how important failure can be in the learning, I'll forget to be kind to myself right? and remember that I have to leave some margin in there in order to get that kind of a turnaround. And so many people are teaching such large classes. That can be such an important act of self-kindness that I, I, I still need to continue to explore and grow in. I mean, because ultimately that comes back to I'm not going to really realistically be able to be compassionate to students if I, if I don't start with that, what the time it's going to take to provide that rich kind of feedback that can Absolutely. be so helpful. Yeah. So what about the challenge piece? I I think so many times when people start learning about this and 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 maybe setting this case for why compassion and challenge but then practically speaking what does that look like mm-hmm. we may start returning to some former ways of maybe how we were taught or not taught as the case may be. How do we <laughs> what are some practical ideas for how to add in that challenge piece that's aligned with it being combined with compassion? Yeah. Well, I think that working with students to scaffold them to something that they didn't know that they were capable of (laughs) and having them, I backpedal a little bit, but I am 
really interested in motivation. And I just finished writing a textbook, uh, fourth edition of a textbook that used to be emotion, but I joined in this fourth edition and I introduced motivation content. And I love setting goals with students in class. And I love the whole goal setting literature. I know there's some controversies there in certain circles, but I love goal setting. And so working with students to set goals about where are your skills in this given domain and where can we stretch it? And we know from goal setting literature that the most effective goals are specific and they're difficult. And if you set goals that are not difficult enough, you kind of dry up your motivation. And so working with students to set individualized goals that are a bit of a stretch for them, I think is a powerful way to demonstrate challenge. I think that having good structure is also a way to demonstrate challenge. And I think so many students, a lot of what we get out of college, a lot of what I got out of college was the scaffolding of time management, you know, and kind of having those guardrails around work. I like the that metaphor for deadlines that they're not blocks that are set in stone, but they're nice guardrails that keep us all on track over the semester, I think is a great way to demonstrate challenge. I also, I spend a big part at the end of the book in chapter eight in one of my interviews, I interview Kelly Leonard at Second City, who trains people in improv, is looking to the world of play as a way to think about challenge. And I think Play is so fascinating because it's it's the the nexus of compassionate challenge. Animals, including humans, do not play if they feel threatened, if they feel unsafe, right? You can only truly play in an atmosphere where you know that things are low stakes, that you know that you're safe, that someone has your back. But then play involves vulnerability. It often involves discomfort, doing things that you haven't done before, taking risks. And I think if we can introduce that sense of play, that again, we're in a sandbox, (laughs) we're safe and we're just experimenting. We might fail, as you said, the power of failure, but it's not dire, it's not critical, right? We're just, we're just playing here, I think can be really powerful and One of the elements of the book is I interviewed with a couple of collaborators, 35 undergraduates from very different types of institutions about their best and worst learning experiences. And so often the students told us about compassionate challenge. They told us about their best learning experiences being at times quite difficult and really having to do things that they were uncomfortable with. There was one student, I call her Hannah in the book, who was a psychology major in HBCU And she told us the story about a presentation she was giving when she got so anxious, she kept turning toward her slides more and more, and then suddenly realized that she had her full back to the class and just froze and stopped and and was just filled with terror. And her instructor didn't tell her to sit down. She just talked her through and the, the rest of the presentation. And she finished that presentation. And what she told us is that now as a junior, that was her first year, now as a junior, she was regularly the first person to participate in class and that she, she attributed it to this, this early experience. And she even told us that she, it helped her in social situations, that she used to go to basketball games and just like hide on her phone because she didn't want to make eye contact with anyone, but that now she felt more comfortable. And I think... That's what I think about compassionate challenge, these settings that are safe, where that are relational, but that help you do things that you never knew you could do. And that then that 
impacts the rest of your life. I'd like to go back a little bit to when you talked about guardrails. Mm-hmm. That is such a powerful analogy. And we're seeing so much emerging about really helpful practices because going too much in one direction of no deadlines isn't particularly helpful. Having really rigid ones we know isn't. Would you talk through a practical example of what those guardrails might look like in a particular class? Mm-hmm. Sure. I'll give you an example that's not mine. <laughs> it is uh, belongs to a biology instructor that I interviewed for another research project looking at undergrad bioeducation. And when we were asking her about her assessment practices and flexibility in particular, one thing that she did, she was teaching intro bio, and she felt that that was a discipline that students would be in a lot of trouble if they didn't pass in assignments and for the first third of the semester. And then all of a sudden they would get to the middle and not have the knowledge and the skills they would need on those mid-semester assignments. But she was also very empathetic and compassionate to her students. And especially in intro bio, many of them are first semester, first year students. And so what she had done is she split the semester into modules. I think this went along with another innovative approach that she was taking. She wasn't going chapter by chapter using the intro book, but going by theme right? What is life? And then I'm not a biologist. (laughs) Uh, I only study them, et cetera. Evolution probably was another one. And then she would have a lot of flexibility with deadline with deadlines within the module. So she would have kind of best by dates for various assessments and assignments within the module, but you had to submit them by the end of that module. And so it allowed students some breathing room and allowed them to do a little more juggling, but there were guardrails. They didn't, wouldn't end up on the final exam, not knowing what a cell was, or they wouldn't let the work pile up into a like big tsunami of work. And I really liked that model. Oh my gosh, I like that too. It's so much when we hear these ideas and then we get inspired and try to put them into practice. I can tell you something that doesn't work, so it's not what you mm-hmm. just described, but <laughs> I have, I've had more latitude and a lot of our learning management systems will allow you to have it begin to reduce points and then you can set a maximum mm-hmm. amount of points that are reduced. And so what I'll do, I don't really like the high stakes thing where it has to be by a certain time. And so right. I'll say, if it's within uh, two, three days, I'm just, I get really used to going up and removing that. So it removes the label of late. It also removes that penalty, even if it's mm-hmm. just something psychological, a percent doesn't really right. matter, but it kind of does. So it's so I'll I'll let them know that, and I, I make sure and communicate that a lot. But I haven't done that. Turn it in within this particular theme of the class, although the class mm-hmm. is themed. So I could easily implement what you just described. And what ends up happening is, I think, on the positive note, and it doesn't feel super positive, but I do want to say <laughs> it. I think I'm going to experience far less D's and F's in the class. Mm-hmm. But on a negative note, even more than I think might otherwise happen, then it becomes the end of the semester. It really does feel super transactional on the student side and then also mm-hmm. on mine. And so I, what a wonderful inspiration we can draw from her and her teaching. And I, I do think so often how we're told by people like you <laughs> to make sure that that what it is we're measuring is in alignment and, and mm-hmm. that can be really helpful. So she's thought through that scaffolding there. Before we get to think a little bit about how we might draw inspiration from your research around caring for ourselves, 
ourselves and our mental health, I did want to ask one more question about the goal setting. Speaking Mm -hmm. of mistakes that I have seen people make, I think sometimes people get inspired by the idea of bringing students in and having them set goals for the class, but they don't know enough about the class and it ends up seeing really artificial and and not particularly Mm -hmm. helpful. What would your advice be for meaningful goal setting? In those cases, which I would imagine would be almost all of them, where you have to know a little <laughs> bit about the material before you could actually set goals around it. Right. True. Well, I think we could take a modular approach here, too. And so students may need, as you say, some understanding of both the content of the course and the then the skills that, that we're working on together. And so it may be not a beginning of the semester goal setting, but giving them that grounding. And then when you start a new module, having them set goals. I think it can also look like autonomy and choice in terms of type of assignments. And so I think that it can be very helpful to give examples, a couple of different examples, and then talk with students about say you're working on communication of ideas. Is it important to you to verbally communicate ideas, to communicate ideas in the written word, to communicate ideas artistically, <laughs> and and have them opt into different assignments based on their own, own values? Because when I was thinking about critiques of goal setting, I was thinking more of some of the backlash I've seen about kind of capitalistic uh, approaches to like, you know, we should be optimized and maximized at every moment and all of that and wellness culture and things like that. But I think when goals are relevant to values and when they are important to us, that is where they have real power. And so I think helping students think through, okay, what are the skills that are most important to you within this domain and this content that we're looking at in this specific discipline? And how can your work in this course shape those skills, I think can be a way to tap into more intrinsic motivation and and address some of those ways that students might choose greater challenges for themselves than we would choose for them. You're reminding me of my friend who teaches computer science, and when he was teaching a class about how to develop apps, it just turned out every app was a dating app, and he wanted to (laughs) align his values and beliefs and and put the criteria on there that it really needed to benefit the world in some way. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, he does not say, and nor am I trying to imply, oh, students today, that's just what they'll do. But what he is trying to imply, and I would try to echo is you just invite people to think about it with that lens. And many times our imaginations just aren't expansive enough to consider the ways that these new, this new knowledge, these new skills that we're gaining may actually benefit the world in some way. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is expanding our imagination to get that, that curiosity going such that we may may start to think, Oh, how could an app that just might not be something (laughs) that they, that they've pondered before, but the output really got markedly different and something Mm. to really, to really celebrate and then root the the students thinking about their learning that way. All right. Before we get to the recommendation segment, would love to hear you talk about some of the research that you did for the book that you found personally to be particularly helpful for fostering your own mental health? Mm -hmm. Well, I think two things. One, the book is in part a memoir about my own discovery, self-discovery and dealing with pretty significant anxiety. 
And it was really through Compassionate Challenge that I was able to grow. I think I could have had a pretty boxed in life if I had fed fed withdrawal and avoidance that was very tempting at times. And so there's a lot there. I think all, all of this is, and Compassionate Challenge is about being a human being, not necessarily a student. And so even though it has this higher education frame, I think that there's a lot there that I have learned from anyway. And certainly having the conversations with those 35 students and then with the experts that I interviewed from so many different disciplines, I learned so much from all of them, the experts and the students who are experts in being a student. And so that would be one answer. I also have been doing a lot of thinking about this topic of supporting both faculty and student mental health, because I think that so many campuses are struggling with how can we shore up student mental health. And I really think that you can't get away from the fact that you're the main way you're going to do that is by shoring up faculty and staff mental health. And I love Karen Ray Costa's writing on mutualism and the idea she looks at the biological world for relationships where two parties don't kind of feed on each other's resources, but but instead expand and, and support each other. And I really think that faculty is success is student success and student success is faculty success. And so I think nourishing our teachers and our support staff with the same things that nourish everyone, time, money, <laughs> resources is is really where a lot of it is, where a lot of the answers are going to be. And I have a piece coming out in the Chronicle soon about joy. And I think that recovering a sense of joy and teaching and learning is also going to be part of the answer. And the tricky thing is, I think, the grounding for joy is going to be those time resources. <laughs> and and so we've got to find that somehow. I love your use of the word grounding there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I've been doing some writing with Maha Bali and we, ju- we uh, just wrote the conclusion <laughs> to our chapter the other day. <laughs> and it involves seeds and planting and propagation. Oh, and, perfect. Yeah. She taught me about in Arabic that the word, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the word seed is connected with the word intention, the root of those words. Mm. Yeah. I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. It's so fun when you're writing with someone else. It's not something I've done a lot. And so I feel like a child in a playful way, getting to learn from her and experience this. But yeah, it's it's really, really fun. I love (laughs) it when when your analogy comes together, like the monsters for you and the the bees. And I can't wait to see what's next with all of that. And I can't wait to read your your Chronicle article, too. I'm going to be setting my watch for the day that comes up. I always enjoy that. Before Sarah and I get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to take a minute and give thanks to a newly formed partnership, and that is with the Lilly Conference series. I typically go to the Lilly Conference in San Diego most years and got to talking with Todd Sakrysik, and for the podcast, he's been on many times before, and we decided we should, for the next year, spend some time sharing with our respective communities about about the opportunities that the other entity provides. So he's going to be sharing about teaching in higher ed at the Lilly Conferences, and I wanted to share about the Lilly Conferences here on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. You could visit Austin, San Diego, Asheville, Traverse City, and have a wonderful opportunity to present, 
to participate, to learn about the scholarship of teaching and learning. The Lilly Conferences invite administrators, graduate students, and faculty to join them at a Lilly event to exchange ideas and build a repertoire of skills that can be put to immediate use. So thanks to Todd Sokrysik and the Lilly Conferences, the evidence-based teaching and learning for this newly formed partnership. And I'm looking forward to sharing about the Lilly Conference in future episodes as well. All right, so I have two things to recommend today for the recommendations segment. And the first one is a little bit of an extension of things I have recommended in the past. As I have been mentioning on a number of shows, I am becoming a person who stretches. Oh, lovely. I, I am becoming that person. And for people who have been following this journey a little bit, have recently had some real progression with my shoulder issues. And I got to show mm-hmm. off how far up on the door. What's that called? The outside of a door? The door frame. How far up I can mm-hmm. now reach. It's very exciting to <laughs> when you can start to see I am actually progressing for something that's taking more than a year to heal. And so I would like to recommend another yoga video. This is from the channel Yoga with Adrian. I love her stuff. And so she had a quick restorative yin that I enjoyed Mm. practicing the other day. And then on a completely, totally unrelated note, if any of you have watched the television show Succession, and this is only if you've watched that show, I think you would enjoy this parody of it. And it's called when you watch too much succession. And again, you will only get the jokes. You don't, don't click the link on the recommendations if you've not watched succession. But if you have, you should quickly go and click that link and enjoy the video. But not around people who it would not be appropriate to have a lot of very colorful language with. Because if you've watched the show, you already know there's a lot of colorful language. And so when they do the parody, they are going to echo the language that you may not wish to you know play in certain contexts. So, But anyway, mm-hmm. Super fun. The the acting is so funny. And if you've seen the show, just just a good, good, good chuckle for sure. All right, Sarah, I get to pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend today. All right. Can I tell you a succession story really quickly? Oh my though, gosh, first? please. <laughs> please, please, so, please. <laughs> I have a 16-year-old and she goes for a nightly walk. And we, my husband and I were watching Succession and she was out on her walk. And then she came in and I, I usually pause it, but it seemed like a safe scene. <laughs> and she's 16, but she saw a little bit of the show while she was taking off her sneakers. And later on, we were talking to my family and I was like, oh, Noelle heard part of Succession. And I think she was a little traumatized by it. And she said, oh, no, I thought I was fine. I just thought it was really weird. You were watching it in front of the dog. <laughs> I love that so much. I love that so Mm -hmm. much. I love I love also that the story that you just told is good for so many reasons (laughs) that that I think when we're so quick to protect is it actually goes back to the whole thing you've been saying Mm -hmm. and writing about. If we if we think that it's all about compassion, and that compassion translates to protecting young people, old people, ourselves from Mm -hmm. challenge. So I've been trying with our kids, though, though, (laughs) there's a song that I recommended before on the episode that has a lot of an S word in it. And the kids are like, we shouldn't be listening to this. And I (laughs) I try to take them back to say, I try not to call words bad words, good words. Mm -hmm. I I call them imprecise words that, that 
and and words that may not be the best to use in certain contexts. So I try to talk about context and then the preciseness of our language. And sometimes mm-hmm. the S word is so precise, like in that song that I recommended before. <laughs> it's like, I can't think of a better word. And that's what makes it so much fun for me to listen to. But I love that about your daughter that you didn't just instantly like that. that that Because so many times what I hear is the important thing is the conversations that we get to have right. after those are are son is really into chess right now mm-hmm. and there's a show that came out he heard about I, i've heard about it too the queen's gambit oh yeah and i looked it up on common sense media which i always do and it was one of those things where i thought eh, like he's right at the age where maybe yes maybe no but right. so much of it would be that okay if i would sit with, and watch it with him <laughs> and then we'd have yep. conversations about i think it's a a show that features alcohol and drug mm-hmm. use, I think the main character may struggle with that. And so that, I mean, what an opportunity to yeah. talk about those things in in a way that, and, and to continue his interest in chess. So, oh my gosh, I love that you told that story. <laughs> All right, now it's your turn, Sarah. What would you like to recommend? Two very different things as well. I think first, green spaces, time and green spaces. And so one of the chapters is on embodied mental health and how embodied mental health is and how giving your body, nourishing your body can nourish your mind and dove in a little bit into the literature on green spaces, things like gardening, forest bathing. And so my first recommendation is to find some time, especially if you're in a climate that is a little warmer this summer, to get out there and have some time in green spaces. It's good for broadening of attention, relaxation, creativity. And then my second recommendation, because it has this thread throughout the book of recreational horror and fear and exposing ourselves to some of these fears, a couple horror recommendations. If you're looking for a movie, I particularly do not like violence or gore, but I really like being spooked. And so two sort of gentle horror movies are It Follows and also Nope, which is a little more recent. And then a TV show, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is, as it sounds, haunting and a little bit spooky, but lacks all the violence and gore. And it's also heartbreaking, uh, not to be spoilery, but those are those are my gentle horror recommendations. Mm. <laughs> that is a phrase I may have <laughs> never heard before, gentle horror <laughs> recommendations. I have heard about forest bathing and I'm curious, so curious about it, but it's something that I don't I don't know a lot about, but someone has recommended it on the podcast before. Mm. And I get kind of curious about that. We don't have tons of forests. No, we, I guess we do. I, it, it, we have um, forests near us that aren't what I would call forests. Because <laughs> they're not quite as wooded. There's, they're not quite as wooded as what I think of as forests. And they're not quite as, I was going to say the word moist. But that's, first of all, a terrible word to that ever is, that use. That is a very controversial word. It's a very sure. controversial word. I was trying to think of the thing. I can't think of describing it. There is some evidence, the whole idea of green spaces, that the greenness is important. But I think vastness and naturalness is also great. And so canyons, ocean doesn't have to be a forest, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The, the vastness. We're, our, our faculty gathering in August is all about wonder and awe oh. 
And yes. so we should definitely take inspiration from, from this example <laughs> you've given us as people go off. Some people for the summer season will be off contract, as they say, and going on all sorts of adventures. <laughs> It'll be so fun to have them come back and have us think about that, the green spaces that we've been able to, and that's expanses that we've been able mm-hmm. to expand in our minds and nourish ourselves in the way that you said. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming back once again. I feel confident that you'll be back soon. Maybe it'll be to talk about your Chronicle piece or something else. But (laughs) I love that we've had an opportunity to meet uh, and have private conversations and ones for the public and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And I just love how much I've been able to learn from you for all these years. So thank you so much. Oh, same. It's a delight. Your generosity. Thank you. Thanks once again to Sarah Rose Cavanaugh for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to each of you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. And the podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. If you have yet to sign up for the weekly email updates from Teaching in Higher Ed, I encourage you to head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Those emails will provide you with the show notes from the most recent episode. And there are also some other goodies that show up in the emails that don't show up on the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.